This is Geology Bites with Oliver Strimple. While Mars has been visited by several missions over the past few decades, Venus has seen very little exploratory activity. But in June 2021, three missions to Venus got the green light. Two from NASA and one from the European Space Agency. One of the NASA missions is called Veritas. It will create integrated global maps of the topography, radar reflectivity, gravity field, and rock type for the Venusian surface. It is the first mapping mission to Venus since the Magellan mission in the early 1990s. Sue Smrakar is the principal investigator for the Veritas mission. She has been part of multiple NASA planetary explorations, including the previous one to Venus, Magellan, and the InSight robotic lander on Mars. Sue Smrakar, welcome to Geology Bites. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's only a few months since Veritas got approved. Can you give us an overview of the mission calendar from here on out? Sure. The timeline we anticipate is to launch in December of 27. It takes about six months to get to Venus. And then we have two phases of aero braking, where we slow down using the atmosphere, put our solar arrays into the atmosphere and use them basically as brakes, so aero braking. So we do that for a period of six months, we interrupt it, and we do it for another period of 10 months. In that interim time period, we are in a pretty elliptical orbit, and we can use our spectrometer from that altitude to acquire data for the surface. Once the second phase of error breaking is complete, that'll be in early 2030, we will then start our full science operations, which will continue for three Earth years. And that's basically four Venus cycles. Venus will fully spin underneath us four times during those three Earth years. So when you're in this highly elliptical orbit, will you be turning off the error breaking so that you can use the spectrometer and then when that phase of the mission is done, switch the solar panels into their braking position again and go down into your lower circular orbit. Right. During the time when we're taking the spectrometer data, we ease out of the atmosphere a little bit. And that time period is chosen because it covers conjunction when Venus is on the other side of the sun from the Earth. So we have a hard time communicating to the spacecraft. So we don't want it to be in any position where it uh, could get itself into trouble. So we pull back a little bit from the air braking. So we keep it in a stable configuration and we take advantage of the fact that we can take good data with our spectrometer during that pause in the air braking. And then after that phase, when you go into the circular orbit, is the main point to get closer to the surface so your mapping activities will have higher resolution? Yes. So the final orbit is a trade-off between having too much atmospheric drag that we have to be constantly adjusting the spacecraft and keeping it from crashing into the surface, if you will. So we, we want it to have a stable orbit, but as low as possible. And that supports the high-resolution data that we acquire from our radar instrument and for our gravity field. What are the main scientific questions that Veritas will seek to answer? The primary three are understanding how rocky planets evolve. Another is understanding what processes are active on the surface of Venus today. And the third one is looking at the influence of past and present water. 
before we go into more detail about how the mission will shed light on the scientific questions, let's talk about the instruments on board the spacecraft. Okay, so we have two instruments and this gravity science investigation. So the radar has just one radar wave that we propagate outward, but depending on how we process it, it gives us lots of different types of information. The timing of the return of the radar signal tells us about the topographies. We directly measure the timing and get the height of the topography. How the radar wave scatters as it returns tells us about the surface properties. How much it scatters on the surface has to do with the roughness and to some degree the composition of the surface at the wavelength of the radar, so around several centimeters. That's what makes up the radar image. So the rougher the surface, the more of the radar signal will be bounced back to the spacecraft, and so it'll look brighter. But if it's smooth, the signal might just bounce away, and you won't see anything. It'll look dark. So that's how the surface texture has an impact. What about the surface composition? You just mentioned that that can make a difference as well. Right. So if there's a kind of metallic, if you will, type of material at the surface, that also will cause the radar wave to be reflected back more strongly. What we've seen in the Magellan data is there's something called a snow line on Venus, which sounds a bit crazy, but that term is used because it corresponds to an elevation, which corresponds to a temperature. And we've seen evidence of perhaps uh, ferroelectric minerals at the surface, and there's a lot of debate and argument as to what that could actually be. But there seems to be a variation that corresponds to temperature differences that cause the minerals of the surface to be more or less reflective. In some places, the difference in the reflection corresponds to very nicely to the elevation. In other places, it seems to not exactly reflect the elevation, suggesting that it's not yet fully in equilibrium. So people have suggested imply recent activity so that the chemical reaction has not fully gone to completion. So it could be a place where there's relatively recent volcanism. So is Venus a bit cooler as you go further up in elevation, just like the Earth? And are you suggesting that therefore these conductive materials are not stable at the higher temperatures and kind of have evaporated and therefore they can only exist as ferroelectric snow, if you like, <laughs> on top of the mountains. Yes, exactly. Uh, they don't necessarily evaporate, but the near surface coating will change. So the minerals right at the surface will change slowly as they chemically interact with the atmosphere at a given temperature. So Magellan also had a radar instrument. How does the Veritas instrument compare with that on Magellan and what kind of different mapping result will we get? Magellan was an S-band radar. Veritas is X-band, so we are a slightly shorter wavelength. And we decided to use that wavelength to focus on producing the highest resolution topography data set that we could. It also will give us good radar imaging, but there's a big trade space of what radars will operate on Venus due to the atmospheric attenuation and what wavelength is optimal for different types of data sets. And we decided to optimize to produce topography to our best ability. And what kind of resolution can we expect? Well, we'll have 
two orders of magnitude better topographic resolution relative to Magellan. So Magellan is about 15 to 25 kilometers per pixel in topography. Veritas will have 250 meter pixel size with six meter vertical precision. So if you imagine Hawaii, we have a few dozen pixels in Magellan resolution, so you can tell that there's a topographic high there. With Veritas, we will be able to see calderas, fracture systems, individual lava flows. So the detail that we'll get in the topography will just be exquisite. Every time we have explored a planet with an order of magnitude better resolution, we have just uncovered features that we had no idea existed there. So I am ready to be fully amazed as to what we may discover on the surface of Venus. One other type of data that we will acquire for the radar, and that is surface deformation. This is the first time we will search for active surface deformation using radar on another planet. Again, the resolution that we'll be able to get is just incredible. We will have the ability to see vertical deformation on the scale of a couple centimeters over kilometers horizontally. So we can see if a caldera above a magma chamber has moved. We can search for active faulting. That's fantastic. So it will be on successive passes over the same part of Venus. So the orbit is fixed in space and the planet is rotating slowly below it. And when it comes back to where it was before, which is 243 days, you'll be able to get another measurement. Is that how it works? To first order, but to take this kind of data, we need a higher order <laughs> precision. So we actually have to adjust the path of our spacecraft very carefully to get in exactly the right spot to reacquire this data because any differences in the position of the spacecraft could be misinterpreted as deformation. And so we actually have a 160 meter tube, if you will, that we have to fly our spacecraft through in order to be close enough to the exact same position that we were in previously. So even though in general, our spacecraft does come around again to the same place, that's on the scale of a kilometer or two. Is that a navigational challenge for the rocket engine people? Yes, yes. The navigators love this kind of challenge. <laughs> I bet. Good old NASA JPL ingenuity at work here. So let's talk about the other instrument, which is called the Venus Emissivity Mapper. Yes. A couple of decades ago, people did not think you could observe the surface of Venus with a spectrometer through the very thick cloud layer and the dense CO2 atmosphere. However, a couple of missions have shown that that is possible. Galileo flew by Venus with a spectrometer that included a band near one micron and was able to get the first hint of the surface beneath the cloud using a spectral measurement. And that was followed up by ESA's Venus Express mission. Although their spectrometer was not designed for that purpose, they were also able to take observations of the clouds that we need to do part of the data processing and a relatively narrow band near 1 micron, 1.02 microns, which is in the infrared portion of the spectrum. And they showed that they could map variations in that wavelength on the surface related primarily to composition. And our spectrometer, the Venus Emissivity Mapper, 
is the first one that is fully designed to optimize observing the surface of Venus. But our instrument has six bands right around one micron. Those are the only ones where we can see through the CO2 atmosphere. Fortunately for us, that area is very active for iron mineralogies, the iron 2+, iron 3+, that's where the absorption features are for various iron minerals. And although we don't have such a broad part of the spectrum that we say, okay, this is a given mineral, what we can do is get at the overall iron content. And that's just really important for a lot of fundamental questions about the rock type on the surface of Venus. We can also use it to address this question of whether or not there are recent volcanic flows on the surface. Venus Express saw six or 10 different locations where there's high emissivity in the surface, and that's consistent with relatively fresh basalt on the surface that has not chemically interacted with the atmosphere fully. And we'll also be looking for thermal flows, things that are actually incandescent on the surface, recently erupted. We have to be very lucky to catch active flows with our spectrometer because as soon as a flow comes out on the surface, it cools at the surface, forming a crust. And so the time period during which a typical flow has an incandescent glow is relatively limited on the order of weeks, typically. The Venus emissivity mapper, unlike the radar, is a passive instrument and is just examining the surface, looking for its emission in this near-infrared band around one micron. So you're going to basically get out of this, the global near-infrared map, I suppose. What spatial resolution will that map have? Well, it's quite low resolution compared to most spectrometers. It's limited to 50, 60 kilometers because that is the height of the cloud layer. And there is absorption of the signal in the cloud layer. And we have to do data analysis to take out the effects of the clouds. But we're limited by that scale of the cloud height. But it will be the first ever global look at composition. So you also mentioned a gravity experiment, and that reminds me of an earlier podcast in which Dan McKenzie talked about using accurate measurements of the orbital velocity of Magellan to measure the gravity field. And he used that, coupled with a topographic map, to determine something about the interior of Venus. Will you be doing a similar experiment with Veritas? Yes, very similar. We will be improving on the resolution of the gravity by a factor of two or three. It basically gets us down to 150-ish kilometer resolution. And that's very important for understanding the elastic thickness, which is the topic you were speaking to Dan McKenzie about. So we will be able to much more precisely see deformation of that elastic lithosphere reflected in the gravity and topography. So I'm very excited for that measurement as well. Okay, so now that we've discussed the instruments and the gravity experiment and the kinds of data that you'll be collecting, let's talk about how these data bear on the scientific questions that you mentioned earlier. And let's start with the processes that shape rocky planet evolution. We are basically going to be studying the tectonic and volcanic processes expressed on the surface of Venus. And those processes give us a window into what's going on inside the planet. They give us a sense of how the interior shapes the surface and how that has contributed to the evolution of the atmosphere over time. 
for example, one question is, did Venus catastrophically resurface or has it been steadily resurfacing over time? And by resurface, what I'm really talking about is what happened to the impact craters on the surface of Venus? If you look at the moon or Mars or Mercury, it's littered with impact craters. Venus has only about a thousand. That tells us that it is a young surface. How young is a matter of debate. It could be on average as little as 150 million years. On the far side, it could be as much as close to a billion years on average. But perhaps the bigger question is, what happened to all the prior impacts? You know, if you look at the surface of the Earth, you don't see very many impact craters. Now, we have very different processes in the sense that erosion is a dominant process and sedimentation is a dominant process on the Earth, not so much in Venus. So many impact craters are simply eroded away. But still, the surface of the Earth, especially the oceanic lithosphere, is quite young. At most, it's 200 million years, on average about 50 million years. And so the surface of Venus, the age, is more similar to that age, which really says it's got to be an active planet. So what's wiped out the impact craters and when? There are two competing models. One is the so-called catastrophic model, and that says there was some massive event. Let's call it volcanism. And if it was volcanism the surface would have been covered in a kilometer thick layer, at least, of volcanism globally, the whole planet. So you can imagine that that is an entirely different geodynamic regime than anything we've seen on the surface of the Earth. That's just mind-boggling. And both geodynamicists and climate scientists love this idea. It blows your mind. How does the planet do that? What would it have done to the climate? It would have suggested that Something was happening in the interior that was just quite unlike the Earth, and it would have produced very massive changes in the climate, hundreds of degrees rapidly in the atmospheric temperature. Another model shows that if you have small patches of resurfacing, again, let's call it volcanic, because that kind of makes sense for Venus, that you have volcanism covering up impact craters on scales of a few hundred to a thousand-ish kilometers. That fits the data just as well. It's not quite as dramatic, (laughs) but it fits the data just as well. And if you've taken other factors, such as the distribution of extended ejecta, the very fine-grained material that gets projected into the atmosphere when a meteor hits the surface, those features are huge on Venus. They they can be as long as uh, 2,000 kilometers. The, The dust and small particles gets carried downwind. We can see those in the Magellan data. So if you take into account how those have been disappearing, that also points towards a more steady process of removal of craters. And then there's all kinds of new data suggesting that there has been recent activity on the surface of Venus. The Venus Express data I mentioned, people have also looked again at the Magellan snow line information that I mentioned. And there's also variations in the composition of the atmosphere, the concentration of sulfur dioxide, has varied on the time scale of years to decade. So that could be coming from volcanoes on the surface. So I think this paradigm of Venus having catastrophically resurfaced, that thing that you typically read in textbooks, is really changing. So that's a question that we'll very precisely address by looking at the distribution of volcanism, particularly in and around impact craters. With the infrared data, mainly? Well, a combination. 
one of the big questions that we'll address is, what's the dark stuff, radar dark stuff, at the bottom of 80% of impact craters on Venus? It's dark, so it's smooth. Is that material that's filling those impact craters, is it volcanism or is it alien material that's gotten trapped inside those impacts? If you look at impact craters on Mars, they're just full of dunes because the dust gets in there and it can't get out the sand. That could be the case for Venus. But some preliminary studies suggest that the dark floors on Venus are actually volcanism. And that's based on the fact that if it's volcanism, you would expect to see not only that the impact crater floors would be shallower, but outside of the rims, you would also expect the volcanism to be flooding around the outside of the volcanoes. And it's just hard to be completely definitive about that with the data that we have now. So not only will we be able to use the image data to see, does it look like a dune? Or does it look like a lava flow? But we'll also be able to see how the impact craters are flooded if it is volcanism. When you mentioned the idea of a catastrophic resurfacing of Venus, I was reminded of a previous podcast with Peter Kaywood, in which he talked about a possible catastrophic overturn of a stagnant lid on Earth sometime before plates formed. Are you saying that the evidence suggests that such an event probably did not occur on Venus? Yeah. What type of geodynamic process does Venus have? It's a very high-level question. I said volcanic resurfacing. But another idea that people have had is that the entire lithosphere somehow became gravitationally unstable and sunk into the mantle, so lithospheric overturn. A recent study looked at the relationship between the gravity and topography and suggested that that really didn't make sense because if you had massive amounts of the cold lithosphere having sunk through the mantle to the core mantle boundary, that would produce a signature in the gravity that we don't see. So could that have happened billions of years ago? Maybe, but that would have been a different event than the one that is purported to have wiped out impact craters. So that's another reason to suggest that this catastrophic idea doesn't fit the data well. But in terms of a stagnant lid, yeah, it's a huge question. Geodynamic models tended to focus on whether or not there are plates moving around at the surface. That's a first order question for understanding the Earth. How did these plates come about? What are the conditions that allowed that to happen? One thing I'm super excited about studying is features that appear to be subduction on Venus. And Dan McKenzie, others who were working on the Magellan data, initially looked at many of these features and said, yeah, these are very much like some of the subduction features we see on the Earth. They seem to suggest a similar strength lithosphere. They have similar morphology. There was a big debate again. However, others said, wait, these features are circular, semicircular. They look like mantle plumes. So these are two entirely different processes, right? One of the key questions that people studying plate tectonics 50 years after the original hypothesis are studying today is how did it start? And one idea is that mantle plumes helped initiate subduction. And this idea of plume-induced subduction appears to be what's going on on the surface of Venus. So we have these curved semicircular arcs of subduction, and that's what's produced when you have plume-induced subduction. So the lithosphere of Venus is very hot because of the surface temperature today. And many people have pointed out that that makes it a good analog for the early Earth when the planet hadn't cooled down very much. 
So we can go to Venus and look at this process of plume-induced subduction and attempt to better understand the elastic thickness of the lithosphere, whether or not it's happening today, maybe even see it deforming in action. So we can really study in detail a process that probably hasn't happened on the Earth for billions of years. Or if it has happened, it's been in the context of a planet that already has plates. So we can look at it in the context of a planet that does not seem to have plates and try to understand its potential role in starting the whole process of plate tectonics going. So does Venus have a stagnant lid? It doesn't seem to have any evidence for plate motion, but it may have an entirely different system. It may have a system that's going to eventually evolve into plate tectonics. Those are all questions we really want to address. Let's move on to the geological processes that are currently active on Venus. Sure. In the Venus Express data, the locations that we've seen that appear to have recent volcanism are all in areas where there's additional evidence for mantle plumes. From the gravity data, there's evidence of low-density material at depth. The topography is uplifted in a broad swell, like at the Hawaiian topographic swell. There are volcanoes. So far, what we've seen is that the recent volcanism is concentrated above mantle plumes. So is that a sampling question? Did we only happen to see that in the Venus Express? Are there other types of volcanic processes? That's a really important question because where and how volcanoes form gives us a window into what's going on in the interior. Not only the temperatures in the interior, but also the volatile content. The more volatiles you have in a magma, the the lower the temperature that it, it erupts at. So it's important for understanding the temperature, the viscosity of the mantle. Also, a fundamental question that we're going to answer is, or at least attempt to answer, is, is water still being released from volcanoes and coming out of the interior? Many people have proposed that the primary difference between Venus and Earth is that Venus is dry. Well, the atmosphere is definitely dry. The crust is very hot and definitely dry. But we don't know about what's going on in the mantle. Some data even suggests that there may be more volatiles retained in the interior of Venus than the Earth. Water has such an important effect on viscosity of the mantle and viscosity of the lithosphere, the processes of atmospheric evolution. It's an absolute first-order question. Is there a lot of water still in the mantle? How would the data give us any clues on the answers to that question? One of the channels for our spectrometer is designed to see water in the atmosphere close to the surface, in the lower 10 kilometers or so. Of course, we have to get lucky to see that. You have to have significant quantities of water, a few weight percent, shall we say, in the magma, which is observed in some magmas on the Earth. But you need that in order to have enough buoyancy for the gases to escape under the very dense atmosphere of the surface of Venus. So we'll be looking for that. Is there any evidence of past water on the surface of Venus? Some people think there may be evidence of actual fluvial erosion features on the surface of Venus. I think that's still quite controversial, but I believe we'll be able to answer that question much more fully with Veritas. But what a number of people feel as evidence for past water is chemical evidence, basically a chemical fingerprint of past water. There are very large plateaus on the surface of Venus. There's about half a dozen. They are on a scale of one to 2,000 kilometers. There are a variety of reasons to think they may be analogs of Earth's continents. 
the gravity data suggests that they could have crustal roots, just like our continents do. So they're so-called isostatically supported. So just this big pile of relatively low-dense material. And they're highly deformed. But Veritas will be able to see all of these plateaus, will be able to get at the iron content. And we think that they may be so-called felsic crust. Granitic crust in our continents is much lower in iron, higher in silica. That's a fingerprint of past water because when you produce that massive volume of felsic crust, what you need is to melt tons of basalt, more iron-rich rock in the presence of water. You can't get continent-scale volumes of felsic rock without water. So these would really point to the presence of water at or near the surface on the time scale of the average age of the surface of Venus. You mentioned the gravity experiment and how we'll be able to get a much better handle on the elastic strength of the surface. But what about the core and looking deep into Venus? Absolutely. Every rocky body has a core, mantle, and crust. It's the effect of a planet forming very hot and melting and separating into its different density layers. But Venus is a challenge to look at the core using spacecraft methods because what we are essentially doing is looking at the wobble of a planet. So, you know, the classic experiment is a raw egg and a cooked egg. You put it on the desk and you spin them and they wobble differently because of the distribution of mass inside those eggs. Same thing with the planet. However, Venus, it's kind of a billiard ball because it rotates so slowly it doesn't have hydrostatic flattening that most planets have. So we need to pay attention to the wobble. It does still have a wobble, but it's harder to measure than in other places. We're going to be able to do that well enough to get the core size to plus or minus 50 to 100 kilometers, depending on mental viscosity and other things. That will tell us not only something about the composition of the core, but we'll also be able to describe the motion of Venus well enough to determine whether it has a solid core as well as a liquid core. We don't know that currently. That's really important for not only understanding the thermal evolution of Venus, but a little bit of insight into why does Venus lack a dynamo today? You know, all kinds of crazy bodies in our solar system have a dynamo that we never expected. Mercury has a dynamo. Some of the icy moons have dynamos. Dynamos are crazy beasts that are hard to model, and it's very perplexing as to why Venus lacks a dynamo today. We've now discovered getting on for 5,000 exoplanets. Will a better understanding of Venus help us understand what it takes to make a rocky planet habitable and therefore enable us to refine what it is we should be looking for in our search for exobiology out there? Yes, I absolutely believe we're going to get important insights into what makes a rocky planet habitable. If you were in a, another galaxy looking at our solar system, uh, trying to look for planets around our star, you would have a hard time distinguishing Venus and Earth. They, of course, have different distances from the sun, so they would know that Venus is getting more energy from the sun, but you would never predict that it has this intense greenhouse. Based on distance from the sun, Venus should be 50, 100 degrees hotter instead of the 900 degrees hotter that it is 
So they look very much identical from a first order exoplanet standpoint. Predicting habitability for a planet is a complex question. And one of the things that I find very intriguing and compelling is that people are trying to look at the first order properties of a planet and say, what matters in creating a habitable long-term environment? And there have been a number of studies trying to get at Earth's evolution and why it created habitable environments. What are the important factors? So a number of studies point to plate tectonics, the formation of continents in creating the right environments at the surface of the Earth or in the oceans in particular. There's one hypothesis that says that the formation of the continents created a different chemical composition in the atmosphere, basically erosion of continents dumped the elements into the ocean that life likes, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, the oxygen, and that the formation of more continents coincides with the great oxygenation event on the earth when life flourished in the oceans and changed the composition of our atmosphere to be more oxygen rich. And Venus is just a fantastic place to contrast with the Earth and try to understand what the variables are that really matter. I noticed you got very excited about subduction zones. Is there a potential discovery or answer to a particular scientific question that you're anticipating the most? I think we're really going to just learn so much. You know, on Earth, subduction zones carry carbon sediments back into the interior, and that's part of the overall climate cycle. And it may be a reason that plate tectonics started on the Earth. It could be a place where there's massive amounts of volcanism being produced today that could have an effect on Venus's climate. So yeah, that's the kind of problem that sits at the intersection of many different scientific questions and data sets. And so yes, that's one that's definitely very near and dear to my heart. Suze Murkoff, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. For more about Geology Bites, as well as illustrations that support this podcast, you can go to geologybites.com.